Hello, and welcome to today's seminar on the labor of fashion, the global COVID-19 crisis, and the politics of resistance in Bangladesh. I'm Chelsea Farrell, the Assistant Director of the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. The mission of the Institute is to engage through interdisciplinary research to advance and deepen the understanding of critical issues relevant to South Asia and its relationship with the world. As part of this engagement, the Institute is running a series this spring and summer on a number of topics related to COVID-19. We're so glad you joined us today. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the moderators of today's panel, Dr. Alora Chowdhury and Dr. Durba Mitra. Dr. Alora Helene Chowdhury is Professor of Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Her teaching and research interests include gender, culture, violence, and human rights in South Asia. Her recent books include Transnationalism Reversed, Women Organizing Against Gendered Violence in Bangladesh, and Interdisciplinary Approaches to Human Rights, History, Politics, Practice. Dr. Durba Mitra is Assistant Professor of Studies of Women, Gender, and Sexuality, and Carol K. Sportsheimer, Assistant Professor at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University. Dr. Mitra's book, Indian Sex Life, Sexuality and the Colonial Origins of Modern Social Thought, published by Princeton University Press in 2020, demonstrates how ideas of deviant female sexuality became foundational to modern social thought. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Chowdhury and Dr. Mitra, and I'd like to now turn this over to Dr. Chowdhury. Thank you. A very warm welcome to our panelists and gratitude to the South Asia Institute for hosting today's webinar on the labor of fashion, the global COVID-19 crisis, and the politics of resistance in Bangladesh. It has been an absolute honor to plan this event with Chelsea Farrell, Assistant Director, and Salman Rafi, Program Coordinator of the Institute, as well as my friend and colleague, Dr. Durba Mitra, who is co-chairing the session today with me. So the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic has posed an unprecedented crisis in the global apparel industry. We're seeing major fashion retailers in the global north closing their stores and laying off workers. Northern-based brands are canceling, suspending orders, or delaying payments. The current crisis is markedly different than 2013, and audiences will remember, of course, when Northern brands demonstrated strong public commitment for protecting the safety and security of Bangladeshi garment workers after the collapse of Rana Plaza, the deadliest industrial disaster that killed over 1,100 workers and injured over 2,500. Bangladesh is the world's second largest ready-made garment exporter after China. 81% of the country's exports are from the RMG sector and the textile and apparel sector contributes around 20% to Bangladesh's GDP, employing 4 million workers. There are reports suggesting nearly 1 million workers have lost their jobs. Workers are not getting severance pay or even their regular pay. On top of the health threat, they're also facing the impact of loss of livelihood. The first case of COVID-19 was identified in Bangladesh on March 8th, and the Prime Minister announced a general holiday or a nationwide lockdown on March 23rd. Since then, there have been significant confusion in communication and policies among the government, the Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers and Export Association, or the BGMEA, the nationwide trade organization of garment manufacturers in Bangladesh, the factory owners regarding factory closures, workers' wages, the distribution of the government stimulus package, and more recently, reopening of some factories and implementation of safety measures. 
by bringing together labor rights organizers, legal experts, and critical scholars today, we hope to address some critical questions. Is it time that we move beyond a spotlight approach of focusing on one actor of the apparel supply chain at a time? Can we engage in effective dialogues and organizing across borders to simultaneously hold global retailers, governments, factory owners accountable for ensuring worker safety and well-being? What does transnational resistance that is mindful of the power differences between labor organizers in the North and the South look like? What modes of dissent to or engagement with power structures, if any, are we seeing at this moment unfolding in Bangladesh and across national borders? What are the optics? What are the ground realities? And what are the possibilities? So I now turn to Dr. Mitra for introduction. Thank you so much, Dr. Choudhury, for organizing this incredible event with such expertise that reaches across questions of labor law course, transnational feminism. Today, I have the privilege of introducing our panel of esteemed colleagues. These include uh, Taslima Akhtar, who was born in 1974. She is the chair of the Garment Workers' Rights Organization in Bangladesh, Gurmit Shomati, Bangladesh Garment Workers' Solidarity. Taslima is also a freelance photographer who currently works as a tutor at Katsala, South Asian Media Institute. She has been documenting garment workers' lives and struggle through her photojournalism for 12 years. One of her photos, Final Embrace, which I think we all are familiar with, became the iconic photo of the Rana Plaza collapse where more than 1,175 workers died. Saslima is the editor of the book, Rana Plaza Collapse, 24th of April, Outcries of Thousand Souls. She has also served as an editorial role for the website, www.athousandcries.org. You'll see that it has the same Title, subtitle from her book. As part of working with the community, she coordinates the Memorial Quilt Project. Jyotir Moy Barua is a Supreme Court lawyer in Bangladesh with specializations in human rights violations, including gender-based rights, labor rights, freedom of expression, ICT law, among many other forms of expertise. He is also a member of South Asians for Human Rights and the coordinator of Life and Nature Safeguard Platform, Bangladesh, a human rights and environmental rights organization, mainly working on development-induced displacement. Dr. Shuti Sabur is currently an associate professor of anthropology and coordinator of social sciences in the Department of Economics and Social Sciences at Brack University. She is an active member of Bangladesh Mohila Parishad, the first women's organization in Bangladesh, and an ally of Garment Shanti, Garment Solidarity, since the Rana Plaza collapse collaborating with them on fundraising, rescue operations, and assisting in the production of an archive of those killed and affected by the catastrophe. For the past few years, her core research interest has been the metropolitan middle class of Bangladesh. She is currently working on her upcoming book, which we are all looking forward to, Marriage and Friendship, Social Networks of the Bangladeshi Affluent Middle Classes. She has been writing on recent social movements, such as the Shahbaz Uprising, gendered constructions of the nation, culpability, and critiquing left and liberal forces in Bangladesh. Dr. Dinan Siddiqui is Clinical Associate Professor of Global Liberal Studies at New York University. A member of NYU's Society of Fellows, she is also a fellow at the Center for the Study of Social Difference at Columbia University and on the advisory board of Dialectical Anthropology. Dr. Siddiqui has been writing about the garment industry for over 20 years. 
her article, The Logic of Sedition, Resignifying Insurgent Labor in Bangladesh Garment Factories is set to come out next year. Dr. Nafisa Banjim is an assistant professor in global studies and women, gender, and sexuality studies at Lesley University. Dr. Banjim's research and teaching interests include transnational feminist theories, transnational social justice movements, globalization and feminist politics, comparative political economy, critical race theory, and South Asian studies. Her current book project examines transnational labor activism and activist discourses developed in relation to the deadliest garment industry, industrial disaster in human history, the 2013 collapse of Rana Plaza, a factory building housing five garment factories in Bangladesh. As you can see, we have an extraordinary collection of experts speaking on all sorts of issues today, and I wanna welcome them, and I look forward to hearing and learning from you. Our first speaker is Taslima Akhtar. I want to give a special thanks to Professor Laura Chaudhary, Rubamito, and Nafisa Dina Siddiqui, all of you who organized today's discussion. I think this discussion is a very important for Bangladeshi people, not only for Bangladeshi people, important for global audience also, because we are going to discuss about Bangladeshi garment worker who make clothes for American market and European market. They made clothes and they stitch made in Bangladesh in t-shirt to stitching this brand name through the whole process, they become the part of globalization. So before discussing about COVID situation and what is going on on workers' life, I want to share with you a little about our Bangladeshi garment workers. All of you know that more than 4 million workers are in this sector. Yeah, about 60% are women. Bangladeshi garment workers, they earn more than 84% export income for our country. By sacrificing their youth, sacrificing their impression, their life, they're working from dawn to dusk with only $94 each month. This is their wage and they are the cheapest labor of the world. So they make Bangladesh renowned to the world and they're very much important for our economy. But when COVID started to hit our country, when all of our, all people in our country panicked the health situation, how they can secure their health, that time our garment workers, they don't have any time or any scope to think about their health because all of you know that in our country, more than $3.5 billion international order canceled. And our owners, when already Elora said that on 8 March, first our country, the corona identified and our government declared a holiday and lockdown from 25th March. And then all factory was open and government declared lockdown and they closed all governmental office, non-governmental office, school, college, university, everything. But they were not ready to close the factory. They tried to say that they cannot stop factory because if they close the factory, then the economy will collapse. So when all people in the country were panicked that time, our garment workers, they were bound to think about their livelihood. And Corona 
actually change all of our life and it has changed our every day every moment but our garment workers they are in rush every time every moment from march to june to save their livelihood and they don't have any time to sit in a place in a quiet environment to think how they can save their health and last few months i think all of you will be agreed that we have thousands times of social distancing but this social distancing term is very much a luxury for garment workers because they cannot maintain any kind of social distancing and they cannot think about health safety measures because their livelihood is in risk and when the corona started to hit in our country that time they started to fight against layoff against termination against the wage condition because all these things make their life more vulnerable and all of we know that corona will infect all people from east to west and this virus is not any class virus virus so it will affect all of us and it already started to affect people from poor people from rich people from east people from west and all kind of ethnicity gender everybody is infected by this coronavirus but uh, no doubt that working class people is more vulnerable situation through this coronavirus and our bangladeshi garment workers they are also facing a very critical time through this period so we think that bangladeshi garment workers who contributed a lot to develop our economy and who are the backbone of our economy now uh, they are in a pressure they are under threat and our owner and government and also international brands fire nobody is taking the responsibility and they are not sure what they are going to do sometimes we see that they are passing the like they are passing the ball and they are not taking the responsibility and uh, they cannot take any unified decision at what they will do sometimes they say that they don't need to close the factory sometimes they say yes now this is the time to close the factory and uh, when they declared that yes the owner of S- uh, bgma you maybe you know the owners association after few days of uh, coronavirus uh, period in bangladesh they de- uh, requested all owners that this is the time to close the factories then when they declared this few owners uh, closed the factory and the garment workers they went back to village and after few days they uh, again started to open all factories and all garment factory workers they started to come back to the factory by anyway and it created a very big risk for the whole community because you know that more than 4 million workers are working in this sector and if we count their family member and other people who are engaged with uh, this sector is a big number within our population and in our country more than uh, near about 161 is our population so when they started to come from village to factory and they take their life risk and they don't take life risks only for them they also make a situation which can spread the virus and this whole situation create a very chaotic situation in our country and our government declared two lockdown which i think not effectively worked out and for that reason 
if we look what's going on in this time, we will see that the number of uh, corona infected people is increasing. And now near about 80,000 people infected and uh, near about thousands people died in Bangladesh. So these are the situation and uh, from Bangladesh Garment Workers Solidarity and many other Garment Workers Organization, from the very beginning, we tried to say that and we demanded that the factory owner and our government should close the factory, should lock down factory for a few times and try to effectively run the lockdown. But we saw that they cannot continue this and this situation made the whole sector in a vulnerable situation. And when we talk about that, our garment workers, they contributed in this sector for last 40 years and this is the time to take responsibility of their livelihood because this is not the time to go outside on street because garment workers when they are not getting their wage properly when they are under threat of termination and layoffs they go frequently on street and they were doing protests and still they are doing protests and we think that this is not the time to go out and make gathering but they don't have any way because when they are hungry they don't have time to think about the safety, health condition and other things. And two days ago, I was in front of our National Press Club. I saw that more than 1,100 workers were there and they came from like 30 kilos distance and they took public transport and they came in front of National Press Club to demand their five months pending wages. So these are the situation going on in our country. When I, when I look at the workers' face and their eyes, I feel so hopeless and so devastating that workers have to take the life risks to come in front of press club because they are not getting their wage properly and they are under threat. And just before a few days, the president of BGME, so she declared that still termination is not uh, working. They will terminate to a worker from June. So I think that this kinds of declaration means something different to workers. When they started to terminate, they give a declaration that they will go for termination. Then in this pandemic situation, worker will not think about their health because we also saw that government and owners they are trying to hide the actual number of corona infected worker and corona infected people and they are trying to hide the whole health situation they don't want to make this issue bigger so when they give a threat that they're going to terminate workers, then workers also start to work as much as possible because they don't want to lose their job. So they're also trying to hide that they are also infected. But uh, because I, I talk with workers uh, like every day and they uh, share with me that every day few workers go back to home with the symptoms of corona but they are not interested to go for testing because there is a huge harassment for testing and testing scope is not available for workers so it is not so easy thing so they think that if they do test for COVID, then if they will get the positive result, then they will lose their job. So they're not interested to do COVID tests, but they are living with the corona symptoms and they are spreading with their community because they live in a high density area and they also work in a factory where million workers work together. Thank you, Taslima. I think it would be nice to segue into Jyotirmoy's segment. 
Thank you. Thank you, Durba. And thank you, South Asia Institute and Metal Institute. As you have heard, Tashlim, she has given a really vivid picture of what is happening with the government's workers in Bangladesh. I'm just going to give you some insight about the laws and what are those laws the government are actually following during this COVID-19. To start with, we have one pandemic law which has been enacted in 2018. And there are some legal provisions where the health bosses, the health ministry and directorate of the public health department, they got their power to decide on these pandemic situations. But in Bangladesh, since the 8th of March, there has been no such legal implication of this pandemic law in Bangladesh. Bangladesh, instead of using this pandemic law, or we have another law from 2012, which is the Disaster Management Act 2012, we could uh, if really could use them to handle this COVID-19 situation, but government did not utilize these two law. Rather, they declared an holiday for everybody. But surprisingly, when we say nationwide national holiday, these garment workers and certain mega project workers were excluded from this general holiday for some unknown reason. So it was not stated in the government statement, but unofficially they have been working. Still, we had workers unrest in this mega project and also in the government practice. As you can see, People have been agitated for giving their wages, which has been fallen due for last three months, or even for the current months, they did not get any pay. It, it, it happened in the end of March or beginning of the April. People agitated in front of their factories. They have been arrested for making demands for their wages and due wages. And if I may give you some example of these cases, I will. We have a report certain a group of researchers have already published a report this week on the COVID-19 human rights violation issue. And there is a list of certain cases. I'm just going to give you four examples of how many cases and how the factory owners responded to the government workers. In Medla Apparel at Ashulia, the owners filed a case against 100 named workers and 300 unknown, unknown workers. So that is one case in Ashulia in Gajipur, consist April against 23 um, government workers, including three leaders named Jalal Hawladar, Shaheen, and Jahangir. In Gajipur, TRZ government, over 13 workers have been sued for demanding their wages. In Gajipur, again, Luitex government for demanding to pay their 60% of their wages. At least about 53 workers have been sued on 8th of May, and another one in Gajipur, Libas government, 12 to 13 government workers have been sued for demanding their wages. This is just a short list. Uh, we, we access uh, this information from the daily newspaper. So another one I should specifically mention here, one government's leader, Shaheen Mondal, he has been picked up by the law enforcing agencies, and for 24 hours, the family members have, have not known his whereabouts. And at some point of time on 20th of May, he has been forwarded to the Ashulia police station. And then only his family members came to know that he has been basically handed over to a police station. And then he has been sent to the Nobinogor Healthcare Center in Ashulia. 
that means he has been tortured in the police custody and uh, fortunately we have a law in 2013 which prohibits custodial torture and death and there are certain legal provisions we need to follow but we really don't see this law in action this is my point we have laws we have certain safeguards but those are not in action and if i go on to the next stage of these laws starting work leaders and workers have been sued under digital security act as well this is another draconian law we have been fighting since 2018 we had its predecessor ICT act 2006 section 57 was a really dangerous section we had over there and it has been replaced in this new law in 2018 digital security act the spread over is probably in four sections of that uh, section 57 has been replaced in four different sections in digital security act the result remains the same whoever expresses their opinion whoever raised their voice against some sort of a corruption illegality then he has been dealt with in this digital uh, security act and the, the dilemma is the cases are tribal by a special tribunal created under this law to try this digital digital security cases then the lower ministry court that they don't really allow them or grant bail of these um, workers then we have to go to the next tier of the court like this district highest court the session court session court also don't really entertain this bail application then the only option left with us is to go to the higher court the high court division under the supreme court of bangladesh then in the meantime it takes over 3 to 4 months to move to the higher court and you know due to this covid 19 situation regular courts are not working only virtual courts have are running with limited access of these uh, bail applications and and other applications so if you are charged with a digital security act case that means you will have to suffer pretrial detention at least about 3 to 4 months if you are lucky enough to get bail in the higher court then there is a chance to get out of uh, the jail on bail so the, these are the situations we are seeing now and most importantly the public health care policy we have in place in our bangladesh has not been considered in case of these garments workers and also those mega project workers because we have been told to maintain social distancing in every sphere of life but in, you know in a highly dense highly populated country like us and working condition we have in garment factories it is quite impossible to maintain this social distancing and that's how actually this garments workers contracted covid-19 and more than 200 i think 68 persons have been contracted with covid-19 the garments workers and this is only because we did not consider about their public health and we did not consider about their right to life which is guaranteed by the constitution of bangladesh and this right to life is an inalienable right and it does not have any condition attached to it so the government and all other institutions were supposed to honor these right to life of the garments workers irrespective of their class their identity or whatever it is if a person is a citizen of bangladesh then he has this protection from the constitution of bangladesh but this is only in the book and it's not in practice so the legal implication is very poor here if we consider other legal provisions you will see the same sort of mismanagement lack of coordination is happening here and if we come to the layoff and other packing or retrenchment of these workers we have a level of from 2006 there are certain sections certain provisions which the owners were supposed to follow but in april i think 70 to 80% factories had declared layoff without following the government directions the government only declared general holiday they did not declare any lockout or all other provisions which were available under the pandemic law 2018 so 
the government's owners basically did not have that luxury to declare layoffs to be speaking strictly on the point of scope thank you jyotirmoy for pointing out these inconsistencies and we will certainly revisit them i think it's a good moment to move to our next speaker uh, shuti thank you durbay nilora and uh, south asian institute to host us i will summarize some of lima's point and i will try to look into the rhetoric of life and livelihood if we look into the data what it doesn't tell us is that it's not the life of 4 million garments worker but it's the life of their families and others if we go back to the timeline how it all happened which already discussed by elora and lima a couple of times and i will just connect the dots here i mean the general lockdown what happened after general lockdown i mean we see that stimulus packages as has been announced by the prime minister we see our beloved leader of bgmea crying out loud to the buyers that not to let go of our hands and stay with us and they managed to bring back h&m cna and other big brands to buy back the products they have already ordered which was in process and what we also see is that they actually push government to offer the stimulus package which is which is a hefty amount it close to 8.5 billion dollars as a soft loan now the question is with the stimulus package with this uh, this cry and and all of this what did actually this bgmea government and other bodies and other actors did to help out the worker the answer is nothing actually what we see is that when the general lockdown was announced the workers have been working throughout the march and they didn't get the pay they had to go back home and when social media was teaching us how to maintain the social distancing this whole evacuation of dhaka by garments worker on mass was outraged the elite and the middle classes that these are the bodies which is the cause of the pandemic they don't know what they're doing these are the illiterate people these are the ignorant people now look at the rhetoric the middle class and the media and 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 the state everybody is shunning the worker where we are not acknowledging the fact that it is impossible to live with 95 dollars per month and when you don't have the salary of that month at hand and after paying the credits and everything what you left with is you can actually run mostly for 10 days a month and it is impossible to leave in dhaka city with that much of money in hand so they have chosen the, the easiest option to go back instead of leaving in limbo but what happens next is even more interesting and that actually is really frightening because we see the hundreds and thousands of workers paraded back on 4th of april then on 15th of april and basically what what we see is that they were asked to leave because there was quote unquote miscommunication among bgmea the owner and the worker so they don't get the pay till april 4 they don't get the pay of march and we have to remember 72% of those worker actually have been leaving without pay for over 3 to 4 months and only handful of few factories actually paid for the march salary that's about it unfortunately when we look at the actors who are acting in the political field here is the trade unions who are negotiating it's bgmea government and and some other bodies regulatory bodies and workers so basically workers are the only people who can 
negotiate between workers and the state and, and BGMEA is the trade union people, which is already co-opted. Under the neoliberal regime, the trade union movement has been co-opted. So the representative that we see in the trade union, it's shamelessly they're voting for opening up out of 20 trade unions representatives, 11 of them voted in for opening the factories. And only nine said it's, it's not okay because you are actually pushing people in the peril, taking the risk, increasing their health in, in the pandemic. Now, the problem here is that the onus of who gets affected is put on the able-bodied people. So basically, the workers are the one who are here, like it is their duty not to get affected and be the able-bodies to work in the factories, while we, the elite and the owner, can sit in the back in our safety net. And, and that is a problem. There's a whole situation. And what this pandemic has actually exposed us to is this whole problem with how we are identifying these bodies and what happened is that when this official lockdown was over the factories were open the worker came back and resumed their work and the number soared and government solidarity already had a, a study which talks about the numbers of, of how people are getting affected but interestingly again our beloved leader in BGME is actually talking about the hard immunity and the special kind of immunity this this worker has so people, the body which has been shunned two days back for being the cause of the pandemic and the, the dirty bodies who are the causes of the pandemic becomes this essential body because this essential body would actually run the factory, the machines running. And so they become not only the essential, they all of a sudden overnight become the able-bodied citizen here. Now the thing is like, we are talking about able-bodied citizen, but we are absolutely forgetting the things that they are entitled as a citizen. It's not even talking about the, the problem with the rhetoric is that we are this disposable body, which was yesterday becomes able body through our rhetoric and through the rhetoric of the garments owner and the state. And we actually switch between the rhetoric whenever it suits us. The problem here is that when we are not treating these workers as fellow citizens, we are actually stripping away their basic right and entitlement. The entitlement that legally bind owner and the buyer to give them the partial payment for the furlough and also severance pay. So by law, they're entitled to get the partial payment for the furlough from the buyer and owner is supposed to give the severance pay. None of this are happening. And the problem with the profit centricity and this, this rhetoric of competitive market and thin margin is making this worker even more vulnerable, but also it is disguising the strength that the factory owner could have in the bargain. I mean, when you're talking about the thin margin and profit and competitive market, you are essentially not bargaining for the worker, but your profit. And that is a problem because fast fashion needs you as we need them. So it's basically symbiotic relationship that we own. So if we look into the sector, if we look at the global supply chain, then you cannot have this fashion industry surviving without us. So the bargain from the BGMEA and government should have been that to claim their side of the demand and claiming the basic right and entitlement for the worker instead of basically 
having these miscommunications and making this worker even more vulnerable. My problem here is that we know this capitalism is extremely cruel, but the thing is, we are not helping in this factor. This is really fascinating, and I know that we have more speakers talking about rhetoric and the language of capitalist development. So we'll move to Dina. Sure, thank you. That's a very nice segue. Thank you, everybody. I wanted to thank the South Asia Institute, but also Durba, Ilora, and especially Nafisa for bringing us all together. I'm going to talk more about what hasn't changed after COVID and also the spaces that may have opened up. So the pandemic, despite all the death and destruction it has unleashed, has actually also had a powerfully illuminating effect. It has forced into popular discourse and imagination at least having to think about inequality, usually things that are invisible, especially in relation to the structural violence of the economy. I think we're in a different phase now, whether we're in the US or in South Asia, it's not as easy as it was before to just not think about which bodies are likely to be infected, who is left to die and who is allowed to live. One thing I think the pandemic has done, it has punctured a whole set of liberal and imperial myths around neoliberal capitalism and third world women who need to be saved, especially Muslim, Muslim women. These myths have become our common sense and they produce popular consent to otherwise exploitative systems. And the first myth is the empowerment of women, especially of Muslim women, lifting their families out of poverty through factory work. And I'm not saying that individual women have not actually changed their lives, but there have been very few structural changes. But, you know, if you read the New York Times just from last week, there was this Hold the framing is very much about how this factory work will just lift the woman and the family and the nation out of poverty, right? And it's most recently embodied in, for instance, Nike's Girl Effect initiative, which at least we in the US heard a lot about. And in Bangladesh, I think another powerful set of myths have grown up around the garment industry and the empowerment of women to the extent where the very powerful owners lobby, the BGMEA, until recently, it could do no wrong. For brands, what these myths have done is they justify cheap racialized labor. They justify paying factories as little as possible because there is this idea that there's almost like corporations are doing a favor by being in Bangladesh. But other speakers have referred to is right now we see the big brands have actually broken their contracts. They've refused to pay for goods that they actually had contractual obligations to take on and to pay for. By doing this, first of all, they made their priorities clear. They have made clear that what they're really interested in is in profits and that the so-called ethical business model, it's not a priority, but it's a secondary when it's convenient. So it's very interesting because what we see is when they don't actually pay up, you know, we have to stop thinking of these corporations as doing good, as capitalism, as being beneficial for both sides. It's a very unequal system. And this myth of free and equal trade, I think we really need to attack this. And how is it that corporations can just do this, not pay after signing contracts? 
they can do it because trade rules are made by the powerful for the powerful. So there is something called a clause that I did not know about before the pandemic called the force majeure, which gives companies a way to slip out of their contracts in case there are disasters. And, you know, it's a very vague kind of clause, but it's a loophole. Now, that to me seems pretty criminal, but we don't call it criminal. We just call it going by the rules of trade or free trade. We need to think about that. And hopefully we are beginning to move away from an unquestioning acceptance of this idea of corporate benevolence, which we really do have in the United States. And I'm really talking about the United States here because this is where I live and work. So this idea of corporate social responsibility has had extremely pernicious effects on transnational organizing and solidarity. We see this in the wake of the much celebrated Accord on Fire and Building Safety, for instance. It's very popular with European and American leftist activists. And of course, it was necessary. You know, we needed building safety and fire safety, but it, was a, it didn't address the key structural aspects of workers' lives that made them desperate enough to enter a building that obviously had cracks in it. It didn't address, somehow the accord became the solution to Bangladesh's garment industry problems. And it became the solution not inside Bangladesh, where a lot of people weren't necessarily talking about it, but Europe and North America, to the exclusion of talking about other issues. The result is 25 years later, we see exactly the same set of problems. We see exactly what hasn't changed after 2013 in particular. No lack of payments, blacklisting, firing if you speak up, all of those things that were there 25 years ago when I first started fieldwork, they're there. The accord rendered technical what were essentially political problems. And more importantly, I think the accord really left the supply chain intact but I think one of the things the pandemic has laid there, another myth, about the supply chain as sort of an equal opportunity way of producing goods, the current pandemic has shown the extreme asymmetry in supply chain capitalism. And that asymmetry really affects laboring bodies in places like Bangladesh. So the tremendous power that brands have over local manufacturers means they can push down prices as much as they like. And local factories who don't want to lose their profits then pass on the burden to workers by increasing individual quotas, hiring workers. This is exactly what happened after Rana Plaza. Nafisa. I wanted to focus on the question of who is speaking for whom in the landscape of garment labor organizing during the global COVID-19 crisis. And before I address this, I want to briefly touch upon what happened in transnational labor organizing after the collapse of Rana Plaza in 2013 and before this COVID-19 crisis. So the Accord and Alliance, they both put a disproportionate amount of spotlight on transnational labor organizing, and they focus mostly on the questions of building and fire safety of garment factories. The leftist progressive labor rights circle lauded Accord which is basically a legally binding agreement between brands and local and international labor rights groups for being a major breakthrough and game changer. And they mostly focus on criticizing alliance for merely adapting a corporate social responsibility model. But both Accord and Alliance relied on a private governance mechanism to exclusively shine the spotlight on a technocratic definition of workplace safety that is building on fire safety in this case, while ignoring other forms of safety, such as living wage, job security, or safety from sexual harassment. 
So there was a huge disconnection between transnational organizing efforts and Bangladeshi grassroots organizing initiatives. Small grassroots, non-cosmopolitan Bangladeshi labor rights groups, for example, Taslima's organization, they mostly focused their organizing energy on addressing exploitative practices of garment factory owners and the Bangladeshi government. And addressing brands often remains out of their purview. On the other hand, transnational leftist progressive organizing initiatives center their energy on pushing global brands to take the responsibility, while to some extent giving benefits of the doubts to the local suppliers and the Bangladeshi government. So the question is, how does this disconnection and the difference and priorities between local and global labor organizing initiatives affect workers' experience during the COVID-19 pandemic? As of today, according to the BGMEA website, 1,150 factories reported a total of $3.18 billion worth of cancellation or suspension of orders, which affected 2.28 million garment workers. In a recent interview with NY Times, Rubana Hogg, the president of Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers and Exporters Association, said, quote, for them, it's a question of the survival of the businesses. For us, it's the survival of our 4.1 million workers. First of all, I would argue that it's not a simple us versus them question. Workers and factory owners can't be collapsed within the same us. Despite the brutal impact of the series of suspensions and cancellations of orders on the Bangladeshi garment industry, the BGMEA and Bangladeshi garment factory owners will continue to have a tremendous amount of power and control over the garment workers. And also the question is not necessarily a binary one between business versus survival, because European and American retailers are also struggling to pay their frontline store workers at a mass scale. And many of these workers have already been laid off and many are dependent on unemployment benefits, which are obviously not enough considering the extent of the current crisis. Many of the workers are organizing with their unions and allies. They're staging strikes, demanding fair treatment from the Jan retailers and demanding their rights for survival. And in the same way, and unlike the way Rubana Hogg, the president of BGMEA framed it in Bangladesh, it's not just a question of survival for workers. It's also a question of business as well. In fact, we do see that the question of business is carefully appropriated by the narrative of the survival of workers. And how exactly is this happening? And here I find feminist historian Michelle Murphy's framing of economization of life very helpful. So economization of life can be explained as a governance mechanism through which the protection of the national economy and the owning class is justified through the narrative of preserving lives of disposable feminized workers. And it is a mechanism through which economic metrics are used to determine who gets to stay at home and stay safe from the contagion and who gets to work and remains exposed. So in Bangladesh, on one hand, we see that garment workers' livelihoods are threatened as they are left without work and income. And on the other hand, their cramped homes, their workplaces offer little to no protection from the contraction of the coronavirus. But BGMEA is overwhelmingly focusing on the economic well-being of workers, ignoring the health safety risks they're experiencing. And in fact, just a few days ago, Rubana Hogg, the president of BGMEA, basically said that the actual number of COVID cases among garment workers is far less than the projected number because, and I'm quoting her here, poor people have a certain form of power. They know how to fight. They are aware and they just believe that they won't get sick. So going back to what Shirdi was talking about, the bodies of garment workers were not just described as able-bodied. It seems like they, they have certain kind of supernatural power that they just believe that they won't get sick and they don't get sick. 
And the statement doesn't take into consideration that the waitlist for getting a COVID test in Bangladesh is really long. It's, it, it gets super expensive if you want to get the test done through private channels. There are many workers who are getting sick and dying, and we would never know the actual number because these workers were never tested. And in another video message to international buyers, Rubana Hawk said, we will have 4.1 million workers literally going hungry if we don't all step up to our commitment to the welfare of the workers. And I would argue that this hyper-focus on workers' economic welfare, this humanitarian survival narrative as circulated by VGMEA, perfectly aligns with their business interests as their historical track record for protecting workers' safety and security and well-being are very, very questionable. I mean, why is the same BGMA which vehemently resisted providing garment workers the living wage and raising the minimum monthly salary to $200 a month, and eventually they settled down with $95 a month just one and a half years ago, and now they're using the language of worker survival and welfare as their business, as usual, gets threatened by the global COVID-19 pandemic. And the interesting thing is if you think about what the international media is doing, think about NY Times, Guardian, Forbes, Fortune, NPR, Al Jazeera, they're covering how the suspension and cancellation of orders and irresponsible behaviors of the retailers are threatening the Bangladeshi garment industry. But I would argue that the coverage is really crucial, but very few of those international media actually reached out to garment workers on the ground and inquired about their experiences and very few actually touched upon all the things that Taslima, Jyotirma, and Shuti just talked about. So I would end with just saying three things. First of all, this simplistic and opportunistic framing of welfare ignores a more critical, complicated, and structural dialogues about the failure of the just-in-time and lean production in the global supply chain. And it doesn't take into consideration the roles of retailers as well as BGMEA, Bangladeshi garment factory owners, and the Bangladeshi government. The second thing I want to talk about is the current COVID-19 crisis demonstrates an overwhelmingly disproportionate amount of global attention to a strictly technocratic form of safety and security through which it demonstrated that the technocratic focus on accord and alliance did very little to provide workers with a safety net to take care of their jobs and physical and emotional well-being. And lastly, it's a very broad comment, but I think it's really important to say it out loud that exclusively focusing on the garment industry and trying to provide garment industry specific solutions will not bring sustainable changes because the problem lies in the larger capitalist neoliberal structure of our society. And the way we naturalize the free market economy, the widespread privatization, the shrinking state, the non-existent social security, and our over-reliance on corporate philanthropy, goodwill of NGOs, and individual charity for addressing deep-rooted structural challenges. So I'll just stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Nafisa, and thank you to all of our panelists for that extremely rich and informative session. I'm starting to look at the questions from our audiences, and many of them are around three themes. One has to do with the particular moment of the COVID-19 crisis, because there is some significant difference between what happened in 2013 and what is happening now, in the sense that the focus may have been more on Bangladesh, whereas now we are seeing sort of a global impact of the virus on the supply chain. 
And so what are some of the ways that resistance on the ground and across borders can look like effective resistance? Secondly, there are questions about the language, the rhetoric, the optics, and uh, certainly the inconsistencies of these. This uh, narrative of suffering of us versus them and who does it really serve? Also these paradoxes, right? The development paradoxes that after 40 years of this industry, we are still seeing the framing of workers, as uh, Shuti said, at one moment as contagion, but on the next as heroic super bodies who can survive anything and continue on this path of cruel development. There are also questions about the selective enforcement of law, that you know we have these uh, pandemic laws and the disaster laws, and what has India done, what has Pakistan done, and you know how are we using or not using effectively at all these laws or instrumentally using them, and who are they actually uh, serving? And thirdly, we also see a notion of solidarity. What does this moment say about the possibility of transnational solidarity and care? So I just want to give a minute or two to see if any of you want to respond to one another. I want to give special thanks to Shuti and Nafisa. I'm totally agreed with uh, Nafisa that when the COVID crisis comes to us, it's not the same to owner and workers. And from the very beginning, from workers' side, we tried to say that the first priority should be the health concern because the garment workers, they are not only profit-making tools. They are human beings. They are citizens. The attitude of owners towards the workers that they are like only like a tool can make profit. And uh, we demanded that owners and government should ensure workers 100% wages in this pandemic time. But they are not ready to give the 100% wages. And owners from the very beginning, they try to say that they are not able to give uh, one month's salary. Then what they are doing last 40 years. We also try to say that they should make emergency fund. They don't have any emergency fund. They are not able to give one month salary. And uh, if they are not able to do anything for workers, then government should take the responsibility. Government should bound owner to contribute for workers. And also the owner and government should bargain with international brands because international brands, they are taking the lion part of profit from this sector, but they are not taking the responsibility. And Bangladeshi garment workers, they are the cheapest labor of the world. So this is not the issue about Bangladeshi people who wear Bangladeshi product. They should know about the story behind their t-shirt, I think. So I want to give special thanks to South Asian Institute. And I think through this discussion, we can make a solidarity bridge with Bangladeshi people. Thank you. Maybe I'll ask Nafisa to take this question about transnational legal avenues open here. The person who's asking the question is saying that here, the U.S. is also woefully behind. So this may be a moment of moving beyond the Western inclination to save others, but rather to lift each other up simultaneously. And do you see that there is anything in the horizon that perhaps transcends the technocratic focus of the Accord and Alliance? Thank you so much for asking such an important question. So when I talk about taking transnational initiatives, I think we should approach the question with a little bit of caution because oftentimes we come up with ideas like, okay, universal social floor is the solution to address this, but we forget that individual realities of those individual countries and individual contexts are very different. So before we start thinking about adapting a transnational approach to address it, I think those local specificities are really important to address. 
um, Acquired to some extent, it was a really good initiative considering that it tried to work in collaboration with international labor rights groups, multinational corporations, local and global labor rights organizers. But where it fell short was the top-down approach of doing this transnational solidarity where they really reached out to local grassroots voices and specifically government workers and asked about what they actually need and how safety and security look like for them. So in terms of transnational solidarity, and people have questioned about what I can do from my part, what people in North America or in the West can do, whether there are ways to kind of merge Black Lives Matter movement with government workers movement. So maybe I can just briefly touch upon sure. what can you do for so first of all, I guess all of us need, need to acknowledge that this focus on what can I do, it's a really like individualistic neoliberal notion that if just I can do my own part correctly, it's going to solve the problem because that just doesn't solve the problem. Your government needs to do something. The corporations who are buying your products from, they need to do something. Your liberal rights, local and global liberal rights organizations need to do something. And it sounds extremely complicated. So maybe I'll just talk briefly about, you know, the things that you can do while acknowledging that, you know, I mean, all of us have to do our parts to make sure that those things are addressed, can be addressed. Ethical consumerism is oftentimes promoted highly to kind of think about what you can do to help those workers. But ethical consumerism only grows up to a certain level. And to be honest, in Bangladesh, those government workers need jo those jobs. So just boycotting a corporation doesn't solve the problem. And also it kind of puts the power back to the consumers and doesn't take into consideration what workers are doing, what local liberal rights organizers like the Slima and others are doing. So what can you do? You need to study. I'm specifically speaking to a Western audience. Please don't just read the Western news sources. There are plenty of writers and journalists and scholars that are writing from Bangladesh who are writing on what's happening in Bangladesh. So it's really important to learn from the local sources. And I think that will give you a very interesting and multi-layered perspective of what's happening and what you can do. So if you just look at the Western sources, they're just talking about, oh, I mean, hold the brands responsible, but that's not the only story. And I guess it's pretty clear from this panel that there are just so many intricate layers. Try to support grassroots organizing initiatives. And that might mean donating to organizations like the organization that Taslima is leading. And there are many other grassroots organizations in Bangladesh. Sometimes they look for translators. They want to circulate their narratives online. So if you have free time, you can volunteer for those organizations. You can circulate the stories. If you are a social media user, go to the websites of those organizations, go to their Facebook pages, and then circulate the narratives and try to learn different layers of struggles. And also here in North America, we need to put pressure on the brands and how can you do so? Maybe you can write to your Congress and House representatives and ask them not to take funding from exploitative corporations. Maybe you can push them to bring bills that will make those corporations accountable for workers. If you are a student or if you're a professor, if you're working at a university setting, there are student groups like United Students Against Sweatshops that organize in different universities and they try to hold their universities liable for ensuring that the clothing and the apparel materials that are sold on campus are source from corporations that are trying to protect workers' rights. So maybe you can engage with organizations. Maybe you can open a local chapter of USAS on your campus and then take it from there. If you are a writer, write about it. If you're a journalist, try to cover the stories. If you are social media, I mean, tweet about it. If you are in Bangladesh, try to work with local grassroots organizers. You can try to participate in rallies and protests, in online demonstrations. You can do a lot of things while staying at home as well. I mean, all of these organizations, they're organizing different events, 
doing Facebook Live, you can participate in those initiatives. Don't just rely on donating for workers when there is a disaster. You need to actively engage in labor movement and challenge the hegemony of BGMEAM. And this is an extremely powerful body in Bangladesh. They have so much of close ties with the government and collectively we really need to challenge the hegemony. Thank you, Nafisa. So I'm going to ask two more questions. First one, I think I'm going to ask Taslima and Shuti if you can comment on this. So the question is asking, how can we build value for what is made by garment workers as pushing down prices relates in large part to consumers' willingness to pay? Looking longer term, fast fashion may not come back as it has been. What discussions are taking place about options for these talented workers such as developing handcraft textile enterprises. So looking ahead, the change that we will inevitably see in fast fashion and how are workers on the ground and policymakers perhaps thinking about that? So Shruti and Aslima, if you can speak to that. Sometimes we try to say that when international consumers, they think maybe they don't need to buy clothes or products from Bangladesh. And I don't think that boycott is a solution because we'll destroy the industry. Consumers should raise their voice about the pricing. They can make pressure on brands and they can talk about the fast fashion and fast fashion also creating a tremendous pressure on our workers. I want to add with Jyoti Moidas, he replied on Abul Ajat Kalam's question about the international law. There is no international law that can make responsible to brands, buyer, and the whole supply chain. But French parliament, they introduced a law named due diligence law. And the European Union, they are also trying to introduce this law. In After Rana Plaza collapse, there was an agreement named Rana Plaza Agreement. Through this agreement, international brands buyer uh, donated funds for the victim of Rana Plaza, but that was not compensation, that was donation. And sometimes when these kinds of things happen, like Rana Plaza collapse or fire in any factory or COVID situation, which affected garment workers usually, that time people think that they can show their empathy, they can show their sympathy, they can do charity for workers, but our workers, they are not bigger. I think we should remember these things. They are not bigger, they are fighter, and they are fighting for their rights. So when we will talk about our Bangladeshi garment workers, when international consumer, they were also talking and thinking to do something, we think we should show our respect that our Bangladeshi people, the garment workers, the citizens of Bangladesh, they want to protect their dignity, which is very important for us. Uh, I'll be very quick. What I don't believe in is that we are putting the onus on the consumer when we're talking about the pay rise and other things, because it's one cloth that you buy, only one person goes to the worker, not even one person. So if you look into the division of how the pricing is done, that's a different ballgame altogether. And it's, it's, it's a different mathematical question. But I think we need to question the actors in the field who are operating within the field and who are the people who can voice not only workers' rights, but also talk about the equity within the field, the political field that, that these movements are entrenched in. And I think it's important to actually revive the trade union movements because I think one of the major problems with the neoliberal economy and the shrinking of the state, as, as Nafisa also 
mentioned is that most of the trade union movements have been either silenced or co-opted. And that is very crucial that have that politics back in the center of this discussion because we are talking about the technicalities, we are talking about the economics, but we are not talking about the social impact and the politics. And that has to be the center of this discussion. And I would end the question here. Thank you. For our final question, I think there are a couple of questions here about some of the myths that you were talking about in your comments, and particularly if you can shed some more light on the particular myths that are being illuminated at this moment. And perhaps, you know, as we talk about myths and realities, what would you like to see? change in this framing of these myths, which obviously, you know, many presenters today have talked about that they do serve a purpose, some of these myths, they're very instrumental in serving a particular narrative about workers, about <clears throat> Bangladesh, about the industry. So uh, to you, Dina. Thank you. The first thing I want to say is this idea, this fear. One of the things myths do is generate fear. What will happen if you do something or if you don't do something? It's interesting what we take for granted. For instance, this idea of raising garment workers' wages will mean higher prices of clothing. It will mean higher prices of clothing if we assume that the brands and the manufacturers are not willing to cut down on the amount of profits that they have. I think it's really interesting. If you look at the extraordinary profit, Shuti was just referring to it. Paying workers more does not mean that prices of cheap clothes have to go up. It just means that a Walmart or a CNA or a Mamadiya group has to cut down a little bit on the profit that it makes, right? Why do we have to maximize profits? This is why I keep saying we have to really think this particular kind of neoliberal logic. There is also the myth of state protection. The US is not the only militarized police state. I don't think it's just in the COVID emergency. And I really appreciated his taking down this war metaphor. We're not in a war. We may be in a state of emergency. But I think the laws that we have on the books, there's this idea that the state will automatically protect garment workers. It's just not true. There are blurred lines, as everybody said, between the state and the BGMEA that makes it very hard. Who is the industrial police for? We live in a place where it's impossible to have industrial labor dissent without having the Digital Security Act. I think one of the things we need to see in Bangladesh when we're thinking about reframing is the problem of garment workers and their rights is not an individual problem, not just of the industry, but we have to look. I mean, if a garment worker gets on the street, which is the only way he or she is heard, they will be picked up by 10 different laws and they'll be booked. I've been looking at first information reports of garment workers who are picked up and it's so interesting. There's the Digital Security Act under which you really, if you say anything you, you know, against the government, you can be picked up. But there are these older colonial laws of rioting and whatever else. But the government makes workers who are on the street who are trying to get their rights they're framed as conspirators or adeshodrohi against the national interest. And I think we need to start thinking about what the myth of the national interest, which carries so much. So why, what is the national interest? Is the national interest just keeping an industry alive? Or is it about actually having bodies that are, you know, citizens' rights? So garment workers, they veer from being, there's always been moral panic around garment workers from a very long time. They're either national heroes and 
or polluting dangers to the national body. I think it's time that we start thinking about how to reframe our priorities inside Bangladesh about what the national interest is. And when we're talking about transnational solidarity and what I would like to see reframed is thinking not in these single issue terms, I am going to help, how can I help a garment worker, but thinking more systemically. On that note, I would just like to close by reminding everyone what Nafisa said earlier, as we think about these multidisciplinary issues to pay attention to not only the global media, but also all kinds of local medias too. So thank you, South Asia Institute, and thank you to all of the wonderful panelists and my session co-chair, Durba. I thank everyone immensely. Thank you all so much.